Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. So we've already experienced a lot today. You know, when you think about the, the, the words of the songs that we've sang uh, together, the, the prayers... Uh, that we've prayed and, and the, uh, the wonderful opportunities, you know, even to see uh, some of the things that our children are learning. Uh, it's, uh, it's a lot to be thankful for. And I'm thankful for you this morning, thankful that, that you've taken the time today. Because I, I am aware that you could be somewhere else. It's raining, so it's not really a good beach day, but I'm, you could always find some place to go where you'd be able to uh, to do something. But you've chosen uh, to be here, and I'm, I'm thankful that that uh, the Lord uh, has laid it on your heart to be here with us. And uh, <clears throat> So I'm going to put you to work. Um, we're in Romans 12, and we're going to be doing some some good, hard... Bible work together. I hope that you love the Bible. Um, if you're not overly familiar with the Bible, I hope that you will make it a goal of your life to familiarize yourself with Scripture and to come to recognize it as um, spiritual bread to feed, uh, to feed your soul. We just finished up a series called Letters to God's People. And it was a series in conjunction with the children's curriculum um, that really looked at the witness of the apostles in written form, which really encompasses the whole New Testament, actually. But the very first statement that we read about the early church is in Acts chapter 2 where it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Of course they did because it was their connection to Jesus. And it's our connection to Jesus. Our uh, New Testament scriptures are the witness and proclamation of the apostles in written form. And then last week we started a, a short series uh, called uh, Transformed. And um, uh, look, at this, look at this quote here that we'll get Dave to throw up there. That uh, I don't know if you saw this uh, floating around the internet, but that's where I found it. I thought it was good. Religion says if we change, God will love us. The gospel says God's love changes us. There is a difference. There's a difference between those two things. The first part is not the gospel. The gospel does not tell us that if we change, God will love us. The gospel tells us that God loved us while we were yet sinners. Christ loved us. And God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But that love transforms us. That love changes us. And that 
uh, is part of the gospel as well. And that is what we are going to be talking about today, how God's love uh, transforms us and changes our lives. Now, the curriculum today assigns three passages, and they are 1 Corinthians 1, 9, Romans 12, 9 through 18, and Philippians 1, 3 to 7. Uh, just really quickly, because we're only going to really talk about one of those passages, and that's the Romans 12 passage. But the 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that word fellowship is the connecting word for the three passages today. And um, how we uh, live out our lives uh, together as God's people loved by him is uh, described biblically with this word fellowship in the greek it's koinonia you may have heard it before it's a uh, it's a really important greek word it means to share in and with and to have in common with and uh so it has a a, a kind of a, a tangible aspect to it where it says uh, in the early church they shared their substance with one another so that no one went without but it also has a very um uh well, not so tangible aspect to it, which is what we share together uh, in communion with, with God and with one another. So that passage there, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, says we're called into the fellowship of his son. And Philippians 1, 3 to 6, we, um, if you take a look there, it says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue uh, to bring it to completion uh, in the day of Jesus Christ. And again, that word partnership there is the Greek word koinonia. So there, Paul uses the Greek word as uh, to denote a, a type of partnership. So we're not, the idea is that we don't just, uh, we're, we're not just getting together uh, for the sake of getting together. We're actually on mission together, so we're sharing a mission. Uh, and so that fellowship word has that meaning as well and so we're sharing in the great commission so in all three of these passages we have this word fellowship and, and you may remember if you were here a few weeks back when we were in first john how important the word fellowship is there as well the other passage that's prescribed by the curriculum is is romans chapter 12 and that's where we are uh, we're going to uh, spend our time today I mentioned Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the first statement in Scripture about the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But if you read on in that verse, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Right? Uh, last week, Doug led us through a large section of Romans chapter 8, and uh, we thought, got to think together about how the scripture says we're no longer slaves to fear, but we are children of God. When we come to Romans chapter 12, it's, um, Paul is moving more and more towards the practical outworkings of the truths of the gospel in our daily lives. And this is, uh, this is kind of interesting. I don't know if you would have taken note of this before. But in my studies uh, preparing for today, uh, I came across this comparison from uh, John Stott. Uh, he says that it's amazing the parallels between Romans 12, 13, and 14, the content there, and the words of Jesus. Now, sometimes people have this tendency to think that 
Paul and Jesus were somehow at odds because they, were, they had a, a different kind of message. But that's not actually true. Uh, there's complete consistency with the teaching of Paul, the apostle, and the teachings of Jesus when he was, was here on earth. Uh, Dave, if you could bring those next three slides up. So you're not going to be able to read these very well, and it's not my intention to go through these in any kind of um, detailed way. Uh, but as you just glance at these, these comparisons, you will see uh, on the uh, uh, right-hand side some of the things that Jesus said, and on the left-hand side, some of the things that Paul says in Romans chapters 12, 13, and 14 that are strikingly similar, even to the, the verbiage. And that's one, uh, that's part. Now, the next slide has a few more. Dave, please. Uh, he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law, Paul says in, in uh, Romans 13, verse 8. And, of course, Jesus talked about that very thing as well. And you can go down through and look at the comparisons. And then there's more there. So those are, those are uh, and I never counted them, but there's a, just a number of comparisons. And, and uh, that's, uh, that's obviously significant because in the end, this is all about Jesus, right? And Paul wrote about Jesus. Paul lived his life in honor of Jesus. He called himself a servant of Jesus Christ, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. So he was all about Jesus. Paul was and it is all about Jesus, and we're called to be all about Jesus. And we're talking about the words of Jesus through his apostles. So, uh, as I mentioned, the assigned text, uh, the assigned text to, to, for today starts in verse 9 of Romans 12. But we're going to start in Romans 12, verse 1, because I feel that the, the context there will be really important to us. So, Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... Uh, there's the word therefore. We talked about that a few weeks back. When you see the word therefore, ask what it's there for. Um, it's important. He's building on, on the, uh, the uh, first 11 chapters of his, of his letter. And he calls them uh, brothers. And that's also significant because he has been dealing with it throughout this letter with the tensions in the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. And if you look back at chapter 2, you'll see that. And if you look at chapters 9, 10, 11, which we want, but if you look at chapters 9, 10, 11, it's all about the role and relationships of the Jewish people and the, those of us who are, are Gentiles. And uh, so uh, when he comes into chapter 12, he calls them brothers, which is very significant. Gentiles and Jews together, despite your differences, need to see yourselves as brothers. And that could move beyond the distinctions of Jew and Gentile. That can move uh, beyond all distinctions. Because the cross of Jesus Christ breaks down all of those walls between people. The gospel, nothing unifies like the gospel. Age, gender, ethnic, ethnicity, Whatever it is, uh, the gospel brings us together into the family of God. Romans chapter 8, no longer slaves of fear, but children of God. And if you're a child of God, then you are a brother and sister to those who are children of God. And that's just uh, really important and great and wonderful stuff. So he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God. And um, 
that could be reference to all of the first 11 chapters. Uh, but it is significant that in chapters 9, 10, and 11, just prior to chapter 12, the word mercy is a key word. And so what has he has proclaimed before, now he is asking us to apply and to live out of, and Paul writes like this, and it's a pattern for Paul in a lot of his writings. He talks about creed, and then he talks about conduct based on that creed. And he says here, I beseech to you, therefore, brethren, and I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that you present uh, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The common uh, Greek thought viewed our bodies as an embarrassing encumbrance. Um, it's any type of spirituality, any type of higher living uh, was only uh, uh, accomplished or experienced if, we could, if you could somehow just uh, negate the body. Uh, but the gospel calls for an embodied application. And uh, we, we, we uh, know from Scripture that Christ created us um, to be uh, to ha with bodies, and our bodies are an important part of God's plan. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is uh, due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. And listen to how Paul describes uh, the deeds uh, and, and, and his description of human depravity earlier in Romans. Listen to these words. He's quoting from the Psalms, and he says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. You notice all of those references to the parts of our bodies being used for wicked designs. And so when you think about Paul's statement here in Romans 12, I plead with you to that you present your bodies, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your, uh, your spiritual worship. Um, I guess it's just kind of the flip side of that, isn't it? Instead of using your body or the members of your body uh, for evil or for sin, Paul says, in the same way that you would do that, now that you know Christ and in light of his mercies to you, you need to use your, the members of your body, use your body, uh, to serve God, to worship God. Christian living is life in the body, and it consecrates the instruments or members of the body into holy service of God. So our bodies are sanctified. They're not just something that we need to negate or, or somehow... Uh, ignore or wish we didn't have uh, our actual bodies become part of how we serve God in this world and um, then he says 
which is your reasonable or which is your spiritual worship, depending on the translation you're using. Uh, commentators point out that, that the, the um, spiritual worship is an unfortunate translation because the word spiritual there is uh, logitis, which is logical. It's reasonable. So Paul's saying here that this is reasonable. In view of the mercies of God, it is reasonable or logical that you would live your life as a sacrifice to God because of what he has sacrificed for you. That's the line of thought, if you will. Um, and then in verse 2, he says, and do not be conformed to this world. So the clarion call throughout Scripture, going all the way through the Old Testament, was to the people of God, do not be like them. God told Israel over and over again, this is how the people around you live. Do not be like them. Do not do what they do. So the message here is consistent with that. And Paul is saying that we should not take our cues on what is real or right or important or how we should live our lives from the world around us. Culture. Wow, we could talk about that for a long time today, couldn't we? But be transformed, Paul says, by the renewing of your mind. So don't think, uh, don't just think that you can cocoon yourself away from the world and shut out the influences of the world and everything will be okay because that's not the way it works because our thinking is already corrupted by virtue of the, the natural uh, sin nature that we have, that we're born into as sinful creatures into a sinful world. Um, I think we fall into this area. We think sometimes that we just shut the world out as Christians, as believers. If we just shut out the influence of the world, we'll be okay. But it doesn't work that way. Paul says, not only do not be conformed uh, to, the, uh, to the world, but he says, be transformed by the renewing of, of your minds. We need, we need to have our minds renewed. We need to, uh, to uh, change our, our thinking. Our thinking needs to be changed. The word repentance means to have a change of mind or heart. That's what it means. So a large part of the renewing of the gospel and the changes that the gospel would make in your life is in the way you think. Because our behavior flows out of our thinking. And it's not enough just to change your behavior. It's not behavior modification. And, uh, you know, if you're here today and you're a parent, you know this. You can make your kids do certain things or not do certain things. And at the end of the day, what have you really accomplished if all they are doing is conforming to your directive? So on the one hand, Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. But on the other hand, he says, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This needs to be something that happens inside of us that changes the way we think, the way we see life, the way we think about, about uh, what is right and what is wrong and the way we think about God and the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about one another. The words conformed and transformed are both in present, past, 
Uh, they're both present passive imperatives. Now you say, what does that exactly mean and why is it significant and why are you telling me that? It's, it's like a lot of these things. It's way simpler than it sounds. You all know what an imperative is. It's a command. Okay? And uh, so it's something that we're told to do. Do not be conformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It's a command. An imperative. But it's also a passive imperative. What does that mean? It means, a passive imperative means that although it's something that we're commanded to do, it's not as much something we do as something we allow to be done to us. Something we either disallow, do not be conformed, or allow, be transformed. And it's in the present uh, tense, if you will. So it's a present passive imperative. Present uh, tense as an ongoing action. So, that's important. This is not a one moment in time, done, been there, done that there, my mind's transformed, I'm good to go. It's not what Paul's saying here. So I'll quote John Stott. He says, both verbs, conformed and transformed, are present passive imperatives and denote the continuing attitudes which are uh, to retain, we are to retain. We must go on refusing to be conformed to the world's ways and we must go on letting ourselves be transformed according to to God's will. How does that happen? I think Paul answered that question in Romans 8. Let me read from Romans 8. He says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So how are we to be transformed by the renewing of our minds? We are to do so by giving attention to and yielding to the direction of the Spirit of God. And of course, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God, right? Christian should be somebody who listens to God and allows God to renew my mind so that my thinking is consistent with his will. Because that's where Paul goes next. He says that by testing you may discern what is uh, the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's where our thinking translates into new action. And this is what we were made for. Or if you will, it's what we're remade for. To do God's will. To do God's will in this world. To be instruments of righteousness, not instruments of unrighteousness. To do good. To live well. To live according to the reality that God built into this world when he made it and made you and I to live in it. And then in verse 3 he says, for by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you, uh, you did, uh, do not think uh, more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Four times in that statement Paul uses the, the Greek word for think. And so it's coming out of verse 2, the renewing of your mind. Okay, so the renewing of our mind, the way we think, 
and hear the way you think about yourself. An interesting place for God to start. That the focus is definitely on how we think about ourselves. And here he, he's, he's saying we need to think uh, not more highly, but, but so, have sober, uh, sober judgment. That, uh, that's judgment that's grounded in reality, not fuzzy, fantasized, disillusioned type of thinking, but what is real. Grounded in reality. Not too high, not too low. He goes on in verses 4 through 8 to um, talk about spiritual gifts. We're not going to get into that this morning because of time. But um, I, I, I would say that Paul's emphasis, whenever he talks about spiritual gifts, whether it's here in verses 4 through 8 or whether it's in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 12 through 14 or in Ephesians 4 either for that matter, uh, his emphasis is always on uh, not... not uh, so much that we are all different as much as we all have the koinonia, the fellowship of Christ, and we share in Christ, and that that what we have in common in Christ is what makes all our differences good. Because otherwise it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good at all. So there's, there's a message of unity. And then Paul starts talking about love in verse nine and following. And um, this approach makes it, his approach in Romans consistent with Corinthians, because in Corinthians that's what he does too. He talks about the body and, and being one with many members, and then he talks about the different gifts, and then he talks about, about love, being supreme, being great, the greatest thing of all. We know I've, I've been talking a lot about love the last number of opportunities I've had to get up here, because I was in First John, and it's all about love, and and before that, uh, you know, uh, it seems like I've been hitting on this theme a lot. And, and why is that? It's because it's such a dominant biblical theme. Whether we're talking about the words of Jesus or whether we're talking about the words of John the Apostle or whether we're talking about Paul's teaching, you know, think about some of the things that Paul said about love. He said, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Last week, chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, up to this part in Romans, Romans 12, every reference to the love of God has been a reference, or every reference to love has been a reference to God's love for us. Romans 8 is one of those places. Romans 5, there's, Paul's mentioned love a number of times, but every time it's been God's love for us. We sang that song, this is how we know. That's from 1 John. This is how we know what love is. Well, John said this. He said, we love because he first loved us. He said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and so we too ought to lay down our, our lives for our brothers. That's the, um, the order, the horse and buggy order of that. And so Paul, he's talking now not so much about the... Um, the nature of the gospel or the explanation of what the gospel is. Now he's talking more and more and more about the implications and the impact of the gospel in our lives as we live out of those implications. Your life, as you live out the implications of the gospel, 
and what that looks like. What does that look like? Well, that's what Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and following are really all about. What does that look like? What does a gospel living look like? And uh, again, the curriculum assigns us, stops at verse 18, but we're going to go all the way to verse 21, Lord willing, if we have time, because it, it, I, I think it deserves to be looked at as a piece. So let's, let's keep plugging away here. Okay, we need to work hard. We need to think hard. Verse 9 and following. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. With Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, uh, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought uh, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. But for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's 10 to 12. Can we do it? I doubt it. <laughs> but uh, we're, going to, uh, we're going to try. So you look through this passage, and, and probably like a lot of people, you might be thinking, well, that's just a real smorgasbord. It's kind of like an assortment of short commands or instructions that Paul is giving here, and it doesn't seem to tie together. I would suggest to you it does tie together. Um, and I would say, suggest to you that, that what ties it together is the theme of love, especially as it relates to the renewing of our minds. And what it means to have our minds renewed in the gospel of God's love for you and for me. So starting out in verse 9, let love be genuine. The word for genuine is literally without hypocrisy. And then the word abhor in this uh, version, the ESV, uh, means to hate. And so you have hate and love in the same sentence. We're supposed to love and to hate. Uh, well, it's kind of the same sentence. Using the Greek, I think. Um, so do they belong together? Do love and hate belong together? Maybe you're thinking they don't really belong together, but they do. And the reason they belong together is because in order to really love people, you have to hate evil. You can't really love people and not hate evil. Because evil destroys people's lives. And um, we, uh, you know, the, Paul says love needs to be genuine. In other words, it needs to be real. It can't be just this here mistaken idea that the world so often has, be not conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It can't be just this mistaken idea that the world has about love because the world does not attach any kind of morality to love. 
The world's idea of love is people just let them do whatever they want. That's a loving thing to do. Never hurt anybody's feelings. Never tell them that they're wrong. Never say you're wrong because that's unloving. Intolerant. That's not real love. That's just a veneer of semblance and sentimentality that is not real love at all. Um, but real love, I, I hope that you understand uh, uh, the need to distinguish between what the world thinks of a love and what real love is. And, in, in, you know, in reality, love does not sin. Love cannot sin. Think about that. Real love cannot sin. The moment you sin, you're not acting in love anymore. And there's lots of reasons why that's true. One of the reasons is because love is the fulfillment of the law of God, and the law of God is holy and perfect. The Ten Commandments, first four, love God. The last six, love your neighbor as yourself. Over in chapter 13, Romans 13, Paul says love is the fulfillment of the law. So how do we love one another? How do we know what the loving thing is? God knows, and he directs our lives. If we will submit, if we will yield uh, our minds and allow him to renew our minds according to what he says is what is right and what is true and what is good and what is uh, loving. Tim Keller says, love is doing whatever it takes to give people whatever they need. That's uh, kind of a succinct definition for you. So Paul says, uh, love, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And then he says in verse 10, let love one another with brotherly affection. Now this uh, sentence contains uh, uh, two Greek words, uh, one you probably have never heard and one you have, uh, uh, philostorkos and philadelphia. Philadelphia you have heard. Uh, philadelphia is... Uh, both of these words, and Philosorcus and Philadelphia, are both traditionally used with children's family situations with children and siblings. So Paul is using familial language. He's talking to these people, and he's talking to you and I, like family. This isn't this isn't uh, this isn't organization or institution or religious affiliation. This is family. He's talking about. Brotherly love. Love of mother for daughter. Father for son, mother for son. Then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, they say that this can be translated two basic ways. One way is it means honor one another above yourselves, which would make it consistent with Philippians chapter 2. But it also can be translated as it is here in the ESV, which gives it a kind of a competitive aspect, which I think is pretty cool because you know how competitive siblings can be, right? Right? It's almost like Paul saying, you want to compete? Try this. See who can outdo the other, showing honor. That's, I think that's, that's kind of cool. Verse 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, this is not emotionalism, but 
I think we can say based on this that if we are genuine, there should be a sense of passion in our lives for Christ and for one another. There should be some kind of fire in our bones that you get and you experience when you really think family. Right? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Hope and patience and prayer obviously go together. And those are not removed from the context of our relationships either. Not if you really think about it. Think about it. What is it we hope for? What is the source of our tribulations? What is it we're really praying for? All these things are in the context of our relationships, right? Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That verb there, contribute, is a verb. It's koinonio. I'm so used to saying koinonia. Koinonia is a a noun. Koinonio is the verb form of that noun. And uh, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hospitality, however, as you will recall, you probably heard me say it before or you've heard somebody else say it, uh, phloxenia is love of strangers. That's what the word literally means. A couple verses back, we had the word philodophia, which is love of the brothers. Now Paul uses the word hospitality, which is love of strangers. And you start to see a transition here. And Paul is transitioning. uh, Taking thoughts of family and brotherhood and slowly introducing others. And that's part of why I wanted to include the last several verses in this chapter, because Paul goes there in a really uh, striking way. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Now that could be your family. That could be those close to you. But I think we tend to think of those who persecuted us as those who would consider themselves to be our enemies. And this is so reminiscent of Jesus, isn't it? That's what Jesus said. Bless those who, who, uh, who curse you. Pray for those who use you badly. So it's very reminiscent of the, of the teachings of Jesus. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I find this is interesting because we usually we think of uh, rejoicing and weeping as emotions. And our emotions are not something that are easily controlled. They just kind of happen to us. And it's pretty hard to say, well, stop feeling the way you're feeling, you know. Um, so, so how does this work? Like, because it, it is in the form of a command. I, I, I thought about this a little bit, and I think, I think maybe what Paul is, is 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 getting at here is that we should be with people. It's pretty hard to be with somebody who's rejoicing and not to rejoice, and and likewise, it's hard to be with somebody whose heart is breaking and not have your heart broken. If you're if you're a Christian. And even if you're not, but certainly if you're a Christian, you know, and, and uh, uh, what's, what's the word, Andy? What's the word? Greek word for compassion. It's like Mitzvah. 
your pain in my heart. I actually feel Jesus. It's used of Jesus in the Gospels over and over again. He actually felt pain that other people were experiencing. I'm proud of you, brother. <laughs> rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's, it's that fellowship thing again, right? Because we don't just, we don't just share our, our substance and what we have. We share life. We share life experiences. We share hopes and dreams and burdens, grief, sorrows, and joys. It's part of the fellowship we have together. Together, koinonia. It's in Jesus. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Live in harmony with one another. Verse 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Live in harmony with one another literally is think the same thing toward one another. And again, you have this word, Greek word think. Paul wants us to change the way we think by allowing God, the Spirit of God, to change your mind. And, and this also harkens back to verse 3 where he talks about, about humility and not thinking of yourself too, too highly. And the Christian community, real Christian community, is marked by genuine humility, and it's a beautiful and precious thing. Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Esteem one another better than yourselves. Don't let anyone look on their own interests. Look on the interests of others. This is Christian, Christian gospel uh, living. And then verse 17 through 21, repay no one evil for evil, but give a thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So in those last five verses, Paul is making this transition. It's not like he's leaving the other behind either. Uh, but he's talking here about, about uh, those who would uh, seek to do uh, you harm. And that's interesting. I find it very interesting that Paul doesn't make a sharp distinction. It's not like, you know what, guys? First, I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes about how you need to love one another and get along uh, with each other and, and how that works. And now, okay, you got it? Now, Okay, now we're going to talk about something different. Now we're going to talk about your enemies. Now we're going to talk about how you deal with the people in your life that, that really don't like you and may even seek to do you harm. But he doesn't do that. He just kind of slides along there. Why wouldn't he make a sharp distinction between those two? And I think the reasons for that are important, and I think that there's more than one simple reason for it, but I think a big part of it is because uh, we don't experience Christian community in isolation. It's not like we're hunkered down here and, you know, it's us against the world. and It's not like that at all. Not in a, genu in a genuine work of God 
There's quite a mixture. There should be. And there may be people here this morning that do not know Christ, and you're not a Christian, and you, you don't, you know, you, Jesus is not your Lord and your Savior. And I'm really glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. And in a few minutes, we're not going to be here. We're going to be out there. And that changes it up again, doesn't it? Because we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. But we are called to be in the world. And real Christian community happens in a fallen world. And sometimes we cut ourselves off uh, from, from people, and that's not helpful. That's not good. There's a lot of mixing that goes on in a genuine work of God amongst people. Um, Paul says in Galatians 6, um, as you have opportunity, do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith, especially those of the family of believers. We don't get to choose, so, right? Yeah, there is something really special, really, really special about the koinonia, the sharing, the, the commonality, the, the fellowship that we have in Christ as brothers and sisters. But that should never cut us off from those whom God loves that have yet to come to know the grace of Jesus. If it does, we have missed the gospel and we're not representing Jesus well at that point you know if there's anything that can be said to be completely and utter, utterly countercultural, it's these statements here that Paul makes at the end of this chapter and that reiterate what Jesus said about our enemies you know the world can talk a lot about Love and, you know, in honesty, there's a lot of good things that happen in our world that go unreported. And a lot, and it's, it's not just believers out there doing stuff. I know that many times it is believers, but some, sometimes it's, it's not because a lot of people do a lot of good things. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of goodwill sometimes. And, and, uh, but, but when it comes to this, this is, this is you won't find this teaching anywhere but in the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. I mean nowhere. Only Jesus taught that we should love our enemies and do good to those who would abuse us. It's completely and utterly radical. But it's part of this whole mix of what it means to have our minds renewed in the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that is to be lived out in our lives. The word for overcome, where Paul says do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good, is a military term. It means to overpower. So when we allow evil, uh, when we, we allow evil to win, when we respond in kind. We are actually forfeiting the victory. 
There's some uh, very fanciful interpretations of this heaping coals thing. You may have read some. If you're a Bible student, you probably would have read some of the fanciful interpretations of what it means to heap burning coals upon somebody's head. Um, the reality is, in the context, it absolutely has to be a, a good, loving, caring thing. It's not vengeance, because it says here, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's amazing how people can flip things around. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. How, how, how there, there is a place for, um, you know, it says vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Romans 13, I'm, I'm just about done. Romans 13, uh, Paul goes on to talk about uh, civil authorities and how God puts them in place to extract to, to, for this very, very reason, right? But, the, but again, whether it's the civil authorities or whether, whether it's people standing before their maker someday, either way, the principle is, is that we have to leave vengeance to God. It's not, it's not ours. And so how do we, how do we respond that way? Because I know, I know, you know, when I, when I stand up here this morning and I say these things, you know, that only Jesus taught this and it's so radical, and it's because it's, it's probably the most difficult thing in the world. I, I'm not really aware of anything that would be harder than to, to actually really do this the way Jesus and the apostles taught us to do it. I've seen it. I've seen it done. I've seen it happen. I know it's real, but how hard is that? How do you do that? Well, there are a couple of things in the passage. But one thing is that um, we trust in God. In other words, we trust in a God who says, I will repay. And we're told not to put ourselves in the place of God by climbing onto that judgment seat and trying to extract punishment from people for the hurtful things they do. That God reserves that place and we need to allow God to be God. So that's part of it. But there's another part of it. And that's all the way back in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. In other words, we have received God's mercy. And that's the other part of it. We love because he loved us, John says. How do we, where is the capacity to love others? Remember, Jesus didn't look down from heaven and look at you and go, wow, what a super person. I think I'm going to love that person. Look at them, they're cool, they're neat. Yeah, I think I like this person. It says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were his, enter, his enemies. That, that word that uh, Alex read from, from uh, Genesis 3, I will put enmity, it's hatred, between you, Satan, and the enemy. And we were enemies of God, and yet God showed us mercy. Let me, uh, let me read a quote and... Uh, 
I think, I think we'll end with this. It's John Stott. He says, when we are moved by the mercies of God, and our, when our minds have been renewed to grasp his will for all our relationships, uh, will, all our relationships become transformed. Not only do we offer our bodies to God, verses 1 and 2, and develop a sober self-image, verses eight, 3 to 8, and love one another in Christian community, verses 9 through 16, but now also we serve our enemies, verses 17 to 21. To repay no one evil for evil, but to overcome evil with good is the way of the cross. That's what Jesus did. And again, that's our supreme example. The cross, Jesus dying for us while we were yet sinners. That's what he's calling us to. If you have questions and you want to uh, send them to me, my email is right there. And... Uh, we're developing a weekly podcast that we're doing. It's only like five or ten minutes long. And uh, we're going to try to use, uh, let them flow out of uh, Sunday morning message time. So that's why that's up there. If you have anything you want to ask or talk about, uh, see talked about in the podcast, send me an email. Steve, it's here at thejourney.ca. Why don't you stand with me? It's uh, 13 minutes after 12. And I hope that you've got great things planned for today trust you do and I hope and pray that those things will include some of the things that we've talked about and looked at here there's a lot in there isn't there a lot in there but it all flows from the same place it all flows from the work of God and the mercies of God in our lives he does a work in us he changes us the gospel changes us is he changing you? He will if you allow him to do so. Um, so will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, I thank you for this great group of people and for each one here, uh, young, old, um, all kinds of different situations, walks of life, Lord. Uh, but Lord, we thank you for that common uh, fellowship that we find in the in you, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we thank you, Lord, that you um, died for each and every one of us and that you live to make intercession for each and every one of us, Lord, regardless. We have that in common, and we're so grateful for that reality. But Lord, we uh, pray that we wouldn't just uh, embrace that, the truth of your love today, but that we would live out of that gospel, that we would be changed, that we would, our lives would be transformed, Lord. So in your words, that the world will know that you have sent your Son. Um, Lord, we're praying and asking that you would help us to apply these things in our lives so we could be your people, so that we can experience uh, the gospel lived out in a powerful and meaningful way. Uh, change us, Lord. Change us from the inside out, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.